0: All right, good morning. morning. Guys, doing all right? Had a good week, enjoying the little bit warmer weather and no snow. It's kind of nice. Take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. As we continue our series, the return of the King, a journey through the Book of Revelation. If you're a guest today, welcome to our church. We are so thrilled to have you with us. Uh, You are catching us right in the middle of our journey through Revelation. Chapter 11 marks the midpoint. The way we study the Bible here at the Orchard Church, most of the time, as we go to a book of the Bible, we start at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way all the way through as God has laid out His Word. And so today, Revelation chapter 11, we're picking it up in verse 3. We only covered uh, two verses last week, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Um, in 1970, the federal government instituted a program called the Witness Protection Program. How many you guys have ever heard of the Witness Protection Program? And basically, this program was instituted to protect uh, witnesses before, during, and after a trial. So they could be a witness and be protected, and they would go to great lengths to protect them. Um, many times, you know, uh, giving them bodyguards or giving them uh, police who could stay at their house and, and, and watch out so nobody would bother them. Um, giving them disguises and things like that. And so you've probably heard of the Witness Protection Program. What I did not realize until this week when I was doing a little Google search on this, there's actually a Witness Protection Program for some of your pets and animals. I did not know that until this week. Let me show you a few of them on the screen. This first one right here, if we could put that up there, this is the KFC witness protection program. little chicken is trying to blend in there with the flamingos, so he is not captured by KFC. Alright, here's the next one. This is, now look close, there's one that is different. This is pretty good. This is the uh, evidently the kitten witness protection program there, so you cat lovers, that's for you. Let's look at the next one. This is the... What do you call these? I call them weenie dogs. hounds, Is that how you say it? Any of you guys have a or, or Am I saying that wrong? Weenie dog. That's why I call it a weenie dog. And he's being protected there in a little uh, giraffe costume. And here's my favorite one. This is the Cheetos witness protection program there provided by Cheetos there to protect that little bulldog. Well, today, we're not going to be looking at the federal government witness protection program or the pet witness protection program, but we're going to be looking at what we're going to call God's witness protection program that is going to occur during the tribulation period that will be uh, started by the rapture of the church, the next prophetic event, we believe, on God's calendar. The church will be taken away, raptured, all the believers from the face of the earth. Seven years of tribulation will begin. We've been studying about that in the book of Revelation. We're at about the midpoint of the seven years after about three and a half years right now. And there's going to be two witnesses that God sends on the scene as his witnesses during the tribulation period. And I want to remind you, as you study the Bible, you'll notice a pattern throughout scripture. This is not the first time that God has done this. Um, God always has a pattern when he does something with the world to leave behind a witness of himself. You remember when God destroyed the earth with a flood? He destroyed everyone except one person and his family. What was his name? Noah. He left Noah and his family as a witness because of their faith in God. You remember when God destroyed and brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, but he brought one of the guys out of Sodom and Gomorrah. His name was Lot, Abraham's nephew, and Lot was a witness of the things that happened there and a witness for God. We've already looked in Revelation in our study at the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that God will raise up during the tribulation period to be a witness of Christ throughout the entire world, I believe in the first three and a half years we saw that back in revelation chapter seven and and this is an old testament principle this truth that, that truth is established by two witnesses uh, deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 first Corinthians, or second corinthians chapter uh, 13 verse 1 both say that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word should be established and this is god's pattern Let me give you some other examples about two witnesses in the scripture. You remember when uh, they sent the 12 spies uh, into the land to see if Israel could go in and take the land? And remember, the 12 came back, and 10 of them said, No way! There's giants. We can't get in there. But there were two guys, Joshua and Caleb, and they came back and they gave witness that, you know, we can take the land because of our faith in God, and He's already given it to us. Two witnesses. Matthew chapter 18 tells us as Christians that if we are to go to someone that has stumbled or fallen or offended us, that we're to go the first time alone, but if they don't listen to us, the next time we're to take what? Two or three witnesses with us. Uh, You may remember when Jesus as a young child was brought into the temple by his parents the very first time, there was two people, Simeon and Anna. That gave witness that this is the Messiah that's been promised. Two witnesses. Remember the disciples? When Jesus had the disciples, he had 12 of them. Uh, there were the 12 apostles and there were many others. And when he sent them out into the towns to share the gospel, do you remember how he sent them out? two by two, two witnesses giving witness of the gospel. Remember when Jesus was buried and he was placed in the tomb and there were some people that said, well, he was never really dead and he was never really buried. Well, God put two witnesses there to make sure that he in fact was dead and that he was buried in the tomb and it was sealed. And that was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two witnesses that saw him placed in that tomb. And then When he rose from the dead on the third day at his resurrection, and when Mary and Martha came to the tomb, do you remember who met them there outside the tomb? Two witnesses, two angels who gave witness and said, he's not here, he is risen. So this is a pattern throughout scripture that ought not surprise us when we get to the tribulation period and the church has been removed, who has up to this point been the witness of the gospel on the earth, that God would leave two witnesses behind during this tribulation period. That's who we're going to be looking at and studying today. Um, I told you last week, we are breaking down chapter 11 into basically five observations of John. Uh, We just looked at the first one last week, and again, I want to remind you of the context that in. chapters 10 through about 14, John is filling in more details of the tribulation period, things that are taking place. Most of them in chapter 10 through 14 apply to the first three and a half years. And then we get uh, to chapter 15 and we'll see the last three and a half years and then leading up to the return of Christ. So let me just give you last week's again by way of review. It's number one on your outline. The first observation that we looked at last week in chapter 11 was the measurements. And we saw in Revelation chapter 11 verse 1 and 2, John was asked to, during the tribulation period, go down and measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers there, which means there has to be a temple. There is not one today. hasn't been one for 2,000 years. If you weren't here last week, I highly encourage you to go onto our website, orchardchurchonline.com. It's already up. Watch last week's message. Those of you that were here last week, would you encourage them to go watch last week's message? Would you do that this morning? It was a lot of fun, and it shows just how current what we're studying is as there's already preparations and plans being made right now to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, just like is described in Revelation 11. So we looked at the first one last week, the measurements. Today, we move on with the last four, beginning with the messengers, the mes- messengers. So let's pick up our study this morning in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3 through 6, as we look at the messengers. John says here, And I will give, or God says to John, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of the prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. These two guys that God says, these two witnesses, are something else, man, and the powers that they have. And so I want to kind of give you a visual. So Hollywood took an attempt at this. Many of you, I know, have read The Left Behind a book series. If you've read that, would you slip up your hand? You know what I'm talking about. And then uh, Kirk Cameron and some people, they decided to put together a couple of movies. I doubt Kirk Cameron's going to be up for an Oscar for his performance in these movies, But they do show some pretty cool scenes. So I want to show you a scene from the movie uh, Left Behind, the second movie called Tribulation Force. um, Their depiction of these two witnesses we just read about in Revelation chapter 11. Watch this. Be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He who believes in the Son is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name the only begotten son of god and the name of the son of god he He is is the christ Christ. Jesus. jesus some bad breath. that's what we just read about now here's the big question when people study this that they really want to know is who are these two witnesses I mean it's very debated and discussed over who these two witnesses actually are and I want to I'm gonna tell you this morning before we finish who I believe they are you can make your own decision Um, we don't know for sure but I think scriptures can really give us some clues and indicators but let me start by telling you what we do know about these two interesting witnesses that God is going to send that we just read about about here in verses 3 through 6. Let me tell you what we do know. First of all, you see in verse 3 that God says he's going to give power to my two witnesses. Make no mistake about it. These are two witnesses sent from God, and they're witnessing of him, and they're witnessing in his power. And so God is behind everything they do and everything they say, and they are from him. John makes that very clear. Uh, I believe these two will mainly minister in and around Jerusalem, uh, and that's different than the 144,000 witnesses as we saw back in Revelation chapter 7 if you'll remember they're sent out into the entire world but it seems that these two mainly stay there in Jerusalem and they do their witnessing and their prophesying there verse 3 also tells us they will prophesy now when we hear that word prophesy many times we tend to think of old testament Prophecy and prophets when they would foretell a future event. God would tell them this is what's going to happen. They would tell that to the people. And then hundreds, thousands of years later, it would come true. That's called prophecy of foretelling the future. But there's also another word prophecy in the Bible. We find this predominantly in the New Testament. And it's exactly what is being talked about here with these two witnesses. And that is the prophecy of not foretelling, but forthtelling. Where you simply are proclaiming the truth and you're telling the truth and speaking the truth. In, a, in one sense, in New Testament definition, every time that I get up here on Sunday morning and I teach to you the word of God and I tell you what it says, that is a form of prophesying. Not because I'm telling the future, not foretelling, but forthtelling. And that's what these two witnesses are doing. They're not necessarily foretelling future, but they're telling the truth of what God has sent them to say. If that makes sense, say yes. I want you to understand the difference between those two. And their message of what they're foretelling is a good news, bad news message. It's a bittersweet message, just like we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. And the bad news is their warning of judgment. You know, judgments have already happened during the tribulation and there's worse judgments yet to come and they're warning of the judgment of God that he's bringing down upon the earth and those who are are wicked and evil and not following God. But the good news is they're giving witness saying, you can still be forgiven of your sins. You can still come to Christ. You can still be saved. And again, as I've pointed out many times through Revelation, we see God's mercy and his love and his grace. He's still giving people an opportunity to come to him. And that's the good news. Now, notice it tells us here, John says that they are going to prophesy for 1,260 days. You can do the math. That equals 42 months or three and a half years. That's how long that they're going to do uh, their ministry of witnessing, three and a half years. I believe it will be predominantly in the first three and a half years. But it's interesting. Why doesn't God just say three and a half years? Because there's other places in Revelation where he says three and a half years. But he says it's 1,260 days, and I think what he's telling us is these guys are going to witness day and night, every day. Their life is a witness for God. And you know what? That ought to be a great challenge to us, shouldn't it? That as Christians, as believers today, we are to be witnesses of Him. Not just one day a week or once a month or, you know, when Christmas or Easter comes around. But every day we are to witness and share our faith and live our lives uh, in witness to Jesus Christ. And I think these guys are a great example of that that that, uh, should challenge us today. I remind you again of the commission that Jesus gave us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And this is, I believe, given to all Christians, all who name the name of Christ. It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you. That happens when you accept Christ. The Holy Spirit comes and takes residence inside of your body and your life. And he says, and you shall be... Be what church? Witnesses. That's for all of us. We shall be witnesses to me, to Jesus, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utter uh, ends, or, and to the end of the earth. Now, when Jesus tells us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, does that mean we all need to, to move to Jerusalem to start witnessing and then move out from there? No. Here's what he was saying. Now he said this first of all to the disciples, but it carried on to us. Jerusalem means you start right where you're at. It starts in your own home. It starts with your children. It starts with your family. It starts them with your neighbors, the people that live in your neighborhood, that you're seeking to try to build a relationship with them so that they know you care about them and you can share Christ with them. You can invite them to church and and, and they can know about the Lord and the gospel. And then that you try to be a witness in your community and your schools and, and, and things like that. And then throughout the state and then do things to help... Get the witness around the world. That's why here at the Orchard Church, you know, we have this church that's established. This is our Jerusalem right here in our community of of, of Brighton and Northern Commerce City, you know, and Eastern Thornton area. But we just started a church in Erie, Colorado, a whole other community because that is like Judea for us. And then we support missionaries all around the world because we want to see the gospel into all of the earth. Amen? Amen. And that's the commission that's been given to all of us. And I, I think when we talk about witnessing and sharing our faith, we, we think sometimes that, you know, that means I, I, I've got to go around, you know, wearing my I love Jesus T-shirt and carrying my, you know, big family Bible and knocking on doors. And, and, and you know, it, it's not it's not those things. It's just caring about people. It's loving people. It's people seeing that you have something that other people don't have. You have a joy. You have a hope. You have a satisfaction. You have a peace about you. And believe me, people today are looking for that, and very few are finding it. We know that to be true. If you just have a good marriage today, people want to know, how did you get that? You know, Shelly and I have been married 18 years, and to to us, that doesn't seem like you know, extremely long time. My, my parents were married, uh, over 50 years. Shelly's parents are going on, uh, 50 years very soon. Uh, but today we tell people, you know, they look at us and we, we say we've been married 18 years. They're like, Oh my gosh, how did you put up with each other for 18 years? You know, especially if they know me, you know, and, 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 and if you just have a decent marriage today, people want to know how have you done that? Are you happy in your marriage? Yes. How? Are you happy with your family? Yes. And and you have these opportunities in lots of different ways that open the door and set the stage for you to share your faith. that it's all because of God and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I received an email about a week ago that I want to read to you guys that, man, I tell you what, just touched my heart. And I don't, I don't know to this day who this family was that did this. And I know we did some things through our children's ministry to encourage them to share the love of Jesus in their community. And the kids made some valentines and they said, now give this to someone that you don't know. And I think one of the families must have taken that to heart. And I want to read this email that I received. It says, Dear Orchard Church, our family was at Pinocchio's in Lafayette last Monday celebrating Valentine's Day by taking our grandmother out to dinner. We were waiting for our food when a family came to our table with smiles on their faces. The little boy, uh, the the boy gently set a single red rose and box of chocolate on our table and said, Happy Valentine's Day, and walked away. I gave the rose to my grandma, the box of chocolate to my five-year-old little girl. We have led our grandma to church several times over the years, but she has not fully surrendered her heart to Jesus yet. She read the card attached to the rose and said, That was a wonderful of them to share their love to people they don't even know. I told her that they were sharing Jesus' love even with strangers. It overfilled my husband's heart and mind to know that your church had this wonderful idea to go around spreading the love of Jesus Christ on this cold Valentine's Day. People are often turned away by the pressure to talk talk Jesus with believers, so it is difficult for them to open their hearts. Your simple way of sharing a rose and a box of chocolate allowed them to open their hearts without them even realizing it. We were there and your family left their reactions, left and the reactions of the people around us were just amazing. There were smiles on everyone's faces because of your simple but genuine love you had left behind. I watched as people read the card, attached the rose and felt the Holy Spirit going to work at each and every table in the entire restaurant. Our family wants to thank you for listening to the Spirit promptly Prompting and making a plan and following through with it. May the good Lord overflow your church's cup. May he continue to bless your church financially so you can continuously do these kinds of good deeds. You are doing amazing things in our community. Keep up the great work. We admire and aspire to be a church like yours. Isn't that an amazing email? Praise the Lord. That is awesome. Just a simple gesture like that can open the door for us to share the love of Christ in the gospel. Be creative with it. Have fun with it. One of the things that our small groups know about that we're getting ready to start this year is every two weeks, I think starting in March, We're going to be doing what we call local outreach and servant-type evangelism in our community. And we're doing some creative things to take small groups to go out for Saturday morning for an hour or so and just do nice servant-type things in our community. One of the things that we're going to do is we're going to go to one of the local gas stations, and for an hour, we're going to buy down the price of gas by 10, 20 cents a gallon. And everybody that comes through, we're just going to say, we're doing this for our community, inviting them to our church. And if you've checked the price of gas lately, I'm sure that's going to go over really big. And, and we're going to do things like pass out water at, at ball games, um, different things like that, just to let the community know, we care about you, we love you, but most importantly, Jesus does. And so I hope you guys will take advantage of those opportunities when you hear about them as they're coming up. And and But but we we are to be a witness just like these two witnesses every day. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that. You'll also notice that John describes something about these guys in verse 3, that they had sackcloth on. Now, why are they wearing sackcloth? Sackcloth is basically this, and we have a picture of but we can put on the screen there, sackcloth is uh, camel skin outfits that are worn inside out so the camel uh, hair is up against your skin. It was not fashionable. This is not something you're going to see on the cover of GQ or Vogue magazine. This was very uncomfortable. But you you read about it many times in Scripture. It's a sign of mourning and discomfort over wicked uh, conditions on the earth, which is certainly what's going to be happening during the tribulation period. And so these guys are wearing this as a sign of mourning over the conditions during the tribulation period. I want to point something else that John tells us about these guys in verse 4. He refers to them as the two olive trees or lampstands. What does that mean? Well, we don't have time to go into all of it. You can go back later and check this out for yourself. But it's probably... uh, talking, uh, likening them to the two men in Zechariah chapter 4, um, describes the same kind of thing, two men that were described as two olive trees or lampstands. Now, in Zechariah chapter 4, it was Joshua, the high priest at the time, and Zerubbabel, who was the governor. Now, Joshua and Zerubbabel were the two men instrumental in bringing the nation of Israel back into the homeland, rebuilding that second temple we talked about last week, and sparking revival because of their witness. And so these two witnesses preaching will spark revival in Israel and Jerusalem just like Joshua and Zerubbabel did in the Old Testament. So I don't believe these two guys are Joshua and Zerubbabel, but the scriptures link them that they're like that and what they're gonna be doing. So I wanted to let you know about that. There are many that believe, and I tend to be one of them, that it's very possible that these two witnesses will be sent first And then the 144,000 will be brought to Christ through the witness of these two. Now, I realize chronologically this is in chapter 11, and we read about the 144,000 back in Revelation chapter 7. But remember what I told you. John is backfilling details even though that it comes a little bit later. And so I think it's very possible these are the two that God sends first that then leads the 144,000 to Christ, and then they commission them to go out into all the world and spread the gospel. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Is a, is a famous verse that kind of talks about what's going on with these two guys like Joshua and Zerubbabel in the Old Testament it says, this is the word of the Lord by, to Zerubbabel, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And again, everything they will accomplish will be in the power and spirit of the Lord. And you know what? That's a great example for us because anything good that we're going to accomplish for Christ, it's not in our power and our strength. It's by the power and spirit of the Lord. Amen. That's where it comes from. Notice in verse 5, God protects them. He protects them and that says that they're able to um, fire proceeds out of their mouth to devour their enemies, kind of like what we saw on the screen there, that God protects them. I mean, you don't want to mess with these guys. They have God's protection and power upon their lives. That's why we're calling this God's witness protection program as God protects his own as he always does. Now, I don't want you to think here, and, and there's different views on this. I'll tell you kind of where I'm at and you can decide for yourself. I don't think God is trying to describe these two witnesses like they're two Godzillas running around Japan with fire shooting out of their mouth. And I realize that's what they put on the movies and all of that. I personally think that what God is describing here is that they will have the power when they speak with their mouths to call fire down from heaven to devour their enemies. I don't know if it necessarily comes out of their mouth or if they with their mouth they speak and it comes down. But either way, they can make you crispy critters really fast. You don't want to mess with these guys. Now, here's the question though. everybody wants to know. Who are these guys? Well, obviously, God does not specifically tell us in Revelation who they are. Actually, we cannot go anywhere in Scripture where God specifically says the two witnesses in the tribulation are these guys. But I know my God, and I know how he works, and I know how he works when it comes to Scripture, and he loves to hide little nuggets of truth throughout the Bible for those who will be diligent enough to dig around and put two and two together, and you can find some truths. And I think we, if we compare Scripture with Scripture and we look around a little bit, I think it's, for me, pretty clear who these two guys are. Would you be interested in knowing that this morning? Okay, let's take a look at that, all right? If you're not, then I'm sorry because we're going to look anyway. All right, here they are. Well, I think one of these guys is very clear. If you just read the scriptures, they're very clear. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, at the very end of the Old Testament, just before the New Testament, listen to what it says, and I'm just going to read it. God says, Behold, I will send you, what's the next word? Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And that's exactly what we're studying in Revelation. All of this stuff is leading up to the second coming of the Lord, the tribulation period. And he says he's going to send who? Elijah the prophet. So I think that's pretty clear to me that one of the guys he's going to send is Elijah. All right. And I think that's pretty clear. And it's interesting that the Jews believe this too because even today when the Jews have their Passover meal once a year... Jewish families, if you go into their home and they stick to tradition, when they have their Passover meal and they set the table, they will always set an empty plate and an empty chair at the table that no one else can sit in. And you know who that table is set for? Elijah the prophet. Because they believe Elijah the prophet will come on the scene before the second coming or before their Messiah comes. And and they will set that. And and sometime during the Passover meal, they will have one of the children get up, go to the door and open it to see if Elijah has shown up yet. That's something they do to this day. So they believe Elijah is one of the ones that is going to come back. So who's the other one, though? Well, let me take you. Hold your place in Revelation. Let me take you back real quick to the first book of your New Testament. Turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, and I think we can figure out who the other guy is, and also build a stronger case why one of them is probably Elijah. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. Now let me give you the context here before we read. Jesus is with his disciples and he takes his disciples up onto a mountain and he tells them, I am going to show you just a little sneak peek, if you will, just a little preview of what I'm going to look like when I come back the second time. That's the whole reason he's taking these disciples up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John. He says, I'm going to show you a, a little glimpse, a little sneak peek of what is going to happen when I come back the second time. All right? That's the context. And watch what happens. And we're going to start in Matthew 16, verse 28, and then go down through verse or chapter 17. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, after six days which is a very interesting number we don't have time to get into, but if you're here at the beginning of the study, that ought to get your attention. After six days, which would be the seventh day, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. So this is a picture of Jesus in his second coming. And when we see this fulfillment in Revelation a little later, when we get there in chapter 20 through 22, that's exactly how we're going to see Jesus coming back. And then notice what happens. And behold, who? Moses. And who else? Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Isn't that interesting? You have with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration a picture of his second coming, Moses and Elijah. Well, you already tie into Malachi uh, chapter 4 what we read that Elijah is going to be one of the ones coming. And now you see Elijah again at the second coming on the mountain. And guess who's with him? Moses. So it's pretty simple to me. I believe Moses and Elijah are the likely two witnesses. And I think that's pretty clear. We don't know for sure. But I think those are some pretty good indicators. Let me give you some other examples of reasons why I think this is Moses and Elijah. When you start comparing these two guys and their lives when they were here on this earth, Moses, uh, God tells us, represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. The law and the prophets make up the entire Jewish Bible as a testimony. Um, Both Moses and Elijah, when they were here on the earth, dealt with antichrist type men, evil men, who did things in the power of Satan. Moses dealt with the Antichrist type of person in Pharaoh. You remember that. And Elijah dealt with King Ahab and fought with him. Um, you also remember that both of them called down fire in the past. This isn't their first rodeo. I mean, they've done this before. Moses was able to call down fire in the plagues that came on in Egypt. Elijah the prophet, remember when he fought with the prophets of Baal? And remember what he did? He called down... Fire from heaven on the altar. So they knew what they know what they're doing. Um, another thing that... Uh, go back to Revelation chapter 11 again. In verse 6, John gives us some more details about these guys. He says, they have power to shut up heaven so it doesn't rain. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood. And they strike the earth with plagues as often as they like. Well, you remember in the Old Testament, Elijah stopped the rain for three and a half years. Interesting. Same amount of time. Um, Moses, the first plague in Egypt. Remember the first thing he did? He turned the water into what, church? Into blood. He's done this before. Remember, it says they can. Call, these two witnesses can call down all kinds of plagues whenever they want. and They have it at their disposal. Moses, ten plagues happened in Egypt uh, whenever he was under the power of God. Elijah, and this is interesting, Elijah and Moses... Elijah was carried to heaven by God. Moses' body was buried not by men but by God, and nobody knows where it's at. Interesting. And both these guys, it appears, shows up during the tribulation period as, I believe, the two witnesses. So I believe it's very likely that these two messengers are Elijah and Moses. But you know what? If we're wrong, it's okay. What's important is their message and what these these guys are doing. But I knew you would be interested in that. So let's move now from the messengers to the martyrdom. What happens to these two guys, these two witnesses? Let's look at Revelation 11, verse 7 and 8. It says, when they finish their testimony, this would be after three and a half years... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and do what to them? Kill them. Kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now for three and a half years, people try to kill these guys. Uh, They do everything to try to get rid of them. They hate them. They don't like their prophecies. They don't like the judgments they're bringing down. And they try to kill them, but nobody can kill them because they have God's protection on their life for three and a half years. But at the end of three and a half years, there is someone who's able to kill them. He's called the beast. And we're going to see this as we move forward in Revelation 36 times in the book of Revelation. The word beast, the title beast, is given to what we know as the Antichrist. And it is the Antichrist that is finally able to kill these two witnesses. And he becomes, again, like a hero to the world because he's like, look at these two witnesses. Look at all the problems that they have caused us. Look at all the plagues they've caused down. And listen to this this story they're telling us about this gospel and Jesus, which isn't true. And, And he finally is able to kill them, and they're martyred. It's interesting that the word witnesses here comes from the Greek word martis, which is where we get our English word, martyr. These two witnesses are martyred for their faith and for their testimony. And I know that when we talk about martyrdom and people being martyred here in America as Christians, it's hard for us to identify with that. It's hard for us to understand that with the freedoms that we have of speech and religion and belief and worship and all those things. But these guys are martyred for their faith. But you know what? Don't think that people are not martyred today around the world for their faith in Jesus Christ. Because they are. We just don't hear about it that much. It's not something you see a lot on the news. But you know what? It happened just this last week. How many of you guys saw on the news this last week the couple, Scott and Jean Adams, that were killed by Somali pirates? You guys saw the story. It was all over the news. Well, they talked about how they were killed and kind of what went down. But what a lot of them didn't tell you, you can find it in some of the places. If you go on Fox News and some of them will tell you the details. These uh, two people, Scott and Gene Adams, were retired. They were in their retired years. And they decided when they retired they wanted to sail the world, not just to see the world. But they took, loaded up their ship called, I think, The Quest with uh, thousands of Bibles. And they were taking these Bibles to remote villages all around the world. They knew they were in dangerous places. Some friends and family even warned them, you know, said, you could lose your life. And they said, well, if we lose our life spreading the Bibles and the gospel, then we're willing to do that. And they ended up their lives being taken as modern-day martyrs because of what they were doing for Christ and sharing the gospel and taking Bibles. Um, you know, and I realize today most of us right now are not being asked to give our lives in order to share our faith. Um, Most of us probably will not be martyrs, but you know what we are asked to do? Die to self. Die to self so we can live for Christ and we can share our faith. And so it's it's interesting these two witnesses are martyred in that fashion. Now, verse 8 tells us that the Antichrist will not just kill them, but what does he do with their bodies? Gives them a nice funeral and burial, right? No. He takes their bodies and he just kills them and leaves them lying in the street for everybody to see. I mean, he did this to shame them, to disgrace them, to mock them, to mock God. He knows who these guys come from. And he's like, I have won. I am victorious. Look at these two guys. We're just good. Don't even bury them. Let's just, just mock them. And people will go by and spit on them and laugh at them. And it was just a big mockery. And he left their bodies lying in the street, the Bible tells us here in verse 8. Well, where did this happen at? Well, John tells us in verse 8 that it happened in the great city. Now, the great city throughout the Bible is Jerusalem. The great city is known as Jerusalem. Jerusalem means city of peace. But at this point in the tribulation period, Jerusalem is anything but a city of peace as these two witnesses have been killed. The Antichrist has now probably gone into the temple and desecrated it. I mean, all hell is breaking loose, and it is a very evil place, and what was once called the great city Jerusalem of peace is now likened to what in verse 8? Sodom and Egypt. Spiritually, says, they're like Sodom and Egypt. You know why I use Sodom and Egypt? Two of the most wicked and evil cities that you read about in the Bible in the Old Testament. That's what's happened in Jerusalem now that the Antichrist is in control. But watch what happens. That's not the end of the story. So for three and a half years, they're witnessing, they're calling down fire, they're calling down plagues, people hate them because of it, but some people come to Christ, the Antichrist kills them, he leaves their dead bodies lying in the streets to mock them and make fun of them, and then verse 9, watch this, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies, how long? Three and a half days, they're lying in the street three and a half days, and not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. Now... Verse 9 is to me one of the most exciting verses in Revelation to let us know we're living in the last days and that this book could not be any more current than it is today. You say, how you get that out of bodies lying in the street? Notice what it says, that people and tribes and nations will all see their dead bodies lying in the street for three and a half days. The whole world is able to see this play out and watch this. And you're like, duh, okay, big deal. Let me take you back about 60, 70 years ago, okay? For like 1900 and some 50 years, people would read something like this and go, that's not possible, How is the whole world, is the whole world going to travel to Jerusalem to gather around and see these dead bodies? I mean, how is the whole world going to see this take place? And scholars didn't really understand this. They didn't know how to interpret this. But for you guys today, does this surprise you at all that the whole world could see two dead bodies lying in the streets of Jerusalem? Of course not. You know, here we are, CNN on the scene with the two dead witnesses lying in the street. I mean, live report. You know, you can take your cell phones out today. And you can turn them on, and you can get live satellite feeds right on your cell phone of events that are happening as they happen. Revelation chapter 11, verse 9 lets us know that we are seeing the fulfillment of these things because we can see how this could take place. If that makes sense, say yes. That That's exciting to me, how current this is and how relevant this is and how this whole thing is going to play out because scholars for many years, didn't. this is one of the places they, they didn't know how to interpret. But today we go, oh, that's... Totally makes sense. We could totally see this happening. But that's not the end of the story. Not, not only does the whole world turn on their televisions and open up their cell phones and, and, and turn on the internet and see this play out, the, these two witnesses that have caused havoc everywhere. In verse 10, notice what happens. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They're rejoicing because they're dead and they're lying in the street and being mocked. The whole world's rejoicing and they make merry and they send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. I call this Christmas in the tribulation. That's what this is. It's almost like an anti-Christmas. Where they're sending gifts to one I mean, they, the whole world is so excited these two guys are dead and rejoicing over it. And it seems that they've been defeated, and God's been defeated, and the Antichrist is the hero that finally is able to kill them. That they're so excited, they say, "Party, man! Let's party like it's 1999." Ow! Some of y'all get that, you know? And they and they're like, Let, "Let's just start sending gifts to each other. It's like Christmas time. Hallmark's got to come out with a new card. Happy Dead Prophets Day," you know? I mean, that's what's going on here. I know it's weird, but but that's how excited the whole world is over these guys being dead and they're sending, you know, gifts to one another. I mean, can't you just see it play out in your mind? You know, NBC, Brian Williams here, day three, you know, with the two witnesses. And yes, they're still dead. Look, here's their bodies. They're starting to decay. And, you know, and he's, he's like, day two, here we are. And then day three with the two witnesses. Yes, they're still lying in the streets dead. And, and, and. Celebration is broken out worldwide, and you know it's it's Christmas all over again. And uh oh uh, oh uh, 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 uh oh we seem to have a, a problem because look at what happens in verse 11. The party ends. Turn out the light. The party's over. Look at verse 11. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. A great fe- fear fell on those who saw them. Y'all yeah, bet. You gotta love that. I mean, Hollywood couldn't make this stuff up. These guys are killed, the whole world is partying, they're rejoicing in news worldwide, everybody's sending gifts everywhere, they're reporting on it, and then after three and a half days, they, boom, they're resurrected, they stand on their feet, and they come back from the dead. I'm sure people are trying to find those receipts to get the exchange policy on all their gifts. And the party is over. And that brings us to number four, the miracle, the miracle. Read. Let's read the rest of what happens in verse 12 through 14. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, to the two witnesses, Come up here. <laughs> I love that. God resurrects them and he's like, Come up here, boys. And everybody's like, Oh, gosh. It's probably not what they said. But we're in church. And they ascended to heaven when in a cloud and their enemies saw him. They see him rise from the dead. They see God call them up to heaven and they start taking off in a cloud and everybody's watching this. And they're probably thinking, we made a boo-boo. In the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past, and behold the third woe is coming quickly. You know what I see here practically for all of us in this story? These two witnesses are a picture of all believers. The same thing that's going to happen to them happens to us. If we die in our faith, then you know what's going to happen when Jesus comes back? We're going to be called up. And he's going to say, come up here. And we're going to be raptured. We're going to be resurrected, our bodies, and we're going to go to meet the Lord, the Bible says in the cloud, in the air. That's going to happen to all of us. If you're alive when Jesus comes back at the rapture, he's just going to say, come up here. And this is a really cool picture That happens to all those who belong to Jesus Christ. Many people have noted that there are a lot of parallels between the two witnesses here and Jesus Christ. Both the two witnesses and Jesus Christ ministered for three and a half years, primarily around Jerusalem. Both the witnesses and Christ were persecuted. Uh, Both the witnesses and Christ had failed attempts on their life to be killed, but could only be taken and killed when God said it was time. Uh, Both them and Christ performed miracles and wonders for people to see. Both preached a message of judgment and of salvation. Uh, Both were killed in Jerusalem. Both rose on the third day. Both of them returned to heaven in front of many witnesses. And when they rose from the dead, both Jesus and the two witnesses, an earthquake took place. Very interesting. Very similar to what happened with Christ happens with these two witnesses. Notice in verse 13 it says there's a great earthquake and 7,000 people die. You know, God's really getting their attention as if them rising from the dead wasn't enough. He sends an earthquake to kill 7,000 people to let them know, you know, this was not a good idea, what you did. And then it says that the rest gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, different scholars and people say, how do we interpret that when it says the rest of the people who were alive gave glory to the God of heaven? Does this mean that everybody at that point repents of their sins and comes to God, everybody? Or does it mean, you know, only some people? And I think the answer is it could be a little of both. I think some people will see this happen and they'll, they'll realize this was of God and they'll turn to faith in God, but certainly there are some that will just discount this and their heart will be so hardened that they'll know it was of God but they still will not turn to God. We see evidence of that as we go through the rest of Revelation, that most of the people will not turn to God. Uh, Many believe, and I tend to lean this way as, as well, that this probably happens right at that three and a half year mark of the tribulation where the Antichrist has desecrated the temple. All this happens with the witnesses. Then they realize it's from God. That might be one of the triggering events that opens the eyes, finally, of the Jewish people. Who then flee from Jerusalem and realize that, oh my goodness, God, you know, son is Jesus and all those things are true. And that, this might be the thing that gets their attention and that might be the reference that John is talking about. The rest gave glory to God. Might be the rest of the Jewish nation that we know will finally turn to Christ and the Antichrist will be after them. And we'll get into that in a, in a few weeks. So let's look at the last thing. We looked at the messengers, the martyrdom, the miracle. Let's close with the message. What is the message here in Revelation chapter 11? The message to the world that takes place after these two witnesses are resurrected and raptured is found in verse 15 to 19. Then the seventh angel sounded. Remember, we've come out of the seven trumpets. We've seen the first six, and we've been waiting for the seventh. Now here it's happening. Finally, we're seeing the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounds the seventh trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, and here's the message. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now that's quite a declaration after everything that's just happened. And then they hear this. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. you got to love that. And the 24 elders, now you see what happens in heaven. Worship breaks out for the fourth time in the book of Revelation. Worship breaks out in heaven. And the 24 elders, which is a picture of the Old and New Testament believers, who sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces, and they worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great. I'm the small. Some of you are the great. And shall destroy those who destroy the earth. And I don't have time to go into all this, and we don't need to because we're going to go into it as we continue through Revelation. But you might make a bracket under verse 18. Verse 18 provides a table of contents for the rest of the things we're going to see happen in Revelation in the second three and a half years that we'll get into. Verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquakes, and great hail, and the judgments began again on the earth. The seventh trumpet has finally sounded. We've been waiting for this since chapter 9. I want to remind you, especially those of you that were here last week and those that are going to watch last week, this week, online, Chapter 11 opened with an earthly temple being built. It was an earthly temple, and we said there were false worshipers and temporary rejoicing, if you remember. It was only temporary. But chapter 11 closes with a heavenly temple with true worshipers and eternal rejoicing that lasts forever and ever. Isn't that interesting how John lays that out? And here's what I see practically for us. As we follow this story of the two witnesses, it appears for a moment that the world is winning, that evil is winning, that wickedness is, is winning, uh, that they're winning during the tribulation. The witnesses are killed. It seems like the Antichrist is in charge, and God has lost, and he is defeated. But God has the last word. He always has the last word. And we see this throughout Revelation and we see it right here in this story as the whole world is celebrating their evil and wickedness and the two witnesses of God being dead. And then just when they think everything's okay, God's like, okay, you've had enough fun, I'm in charge here. And you know what? That is very practical for our lives. And let me tell you why. Some of you either have or you are currently or you will in the future. Go through difficulties in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your finances, in your health. And it will appear that evil and wickedness is winning. But I'm here to tell you, let God have the last word. Let God have the last word in your life and in your situation. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this world cannot hurt you. Satan cannot hurt you. If they take our life, we're just with Jesus that much quicker. They have not won. We've won. Amen? And I want to encourage you today. If you're here today, even right now, if you're going through something in your life and you feel like you're losing and that evil and wickedness is winning, hang in there. Let God have the last word. Amen? Amen? And as we close this out this morning in verse 19, we see the Ark of the Covenant. The temple is seen in heaven. The Ark of the Covenant is seen in heaven. Evidently, God must have got it from Indiana Jones. I don't know. But the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven. And the earthly, I want you to understand, the earthly temple and holy of holies and the Ark is simply a replica of the eternal one that we are looking forward to in heaven someday. We don't need to get so worried about the one that's down here. We need to be concerned about the one we're going to up there. And what here's what it represents. The temple and the Ark of the Covenant represent this. God's presence and faithfulness to His people. God is always faithful. And He wants to be present in our lives, and when we know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we get to experience his joy and his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his presence forever and ever and ever. And that's what we're being reminded of right here. That's where the two witnesses are. They're in heaven in the presence of God forever and ever. The message of the seventh trumpet is simply this. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And even when it seems as though Satan and his forces are winning, they are not. They are not. And one day Jesus will take his rightful place on a throne in Jerusalem where he will rule and reign. Because the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. And that's a great reason for us to praise him today. Would you bow your heads with me with your heads bowed for just a moment as we close?